So who is Ruth? Who is Ruth? Andrew, tell us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I told this story, Space Waves would have been finished three years ago. <laughs> Welcome to the Spencer Whiteout Podcast. Radar. I'll give you a kiss, you give me your number. I checked out a ton, dude. Tell me you felt. We're Americans. We're the ones that are descendants from the 1776 musket bearing motherfucker. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spencer Whiteout podcast. As you space waivers know, back in August 2021, we had a three night premiere for the film. Each night after the movie, we did a Q&A panel, and so I was able to take the best parts of the Q&A panels and compile them together for this podcast. Also, I will mention that our leads, Andrew and Rudy, weren't able to make it. They were actually out filming for other movies at the time, but we're proud of their film careers and that they're moving forward, and so we wish them nothing but the best. And with that, let's get into it. All right, guys, we're going to start out the Q&A questions, okay? So we have some questions that we're going to cap things off with. And then afterward, we're going to open, we're gonna open it up to you guys. This will warm us up a little bit. <clears throat> okay. So this question is for Spencer slash Andrew. So we all know the movie took four years. Tell us about some of the setbacks. The space tower getting destroyed in front of your very eyes on day one of filming. A nine-month delay to find a new tower. Firing a sound designer because of his mistake, which caused eight months of sound work to be deleted. Firing two composers and losing all that work and having to spend thousands on a data recovery center because of the main hard drive failure. Tell us about that. (laughs) Where do you think we should start, Spencer? (laughs) I guess the space tower is the most iconic disappointment. How was it seeing the original tower getting destroyed? That might be more And how did you find yeah, the new tower? So, so I wrote the movie about the very first seed of the story came from obviously the falling out and then also this radio tower in my hometown called Space. And the radio tower was this amazing place that we'd all go adventure out to. Um, and it was just this perfect, awesome abandoned radio tower with like these little buildings around it and like graffiti and there's these ladders you could climb up and it was huge right and it was super awesome and the sad part looking back on it is I I think I only went there three or four times because I kind of thought I would have it forever and I was like yeah like this is awesome you know and I wasn't in a rush to just go all the time because when you went to space it was kind of this like not spiritual, but like you had to be kind of reverent. It felt like just this. Not it was a sacred ground. place. What am I saying, dude? It was a sacred place. It was yeah. sacred. Plain That's simple. the word. Plain sacred, simple. dude. And so, I thought I would have it forever, right? And I wrote the movie about it. Oh yeah, these characters on the radio tower. And then we show up, and then day one of filming, we go to shoot the scene, and this radio tower, mind you, has been up for about sixty years. As we pull up, there are bulldozers carrying pieces of the space tower away. It was brutal. And as far as we knew, that was like the only one. Yeah, we didn't know there were any other towers. Um, And that was really hard, to say the least. Because one, it felt like my whole childhood was getting destroyed in that moment. And two, my entire movie is getting destroyed. And uh, in that moment, we had to decide whether to stick with the vision or to compromise the vision to keep going. And we decided that we were just going to continue shooting principal photography with uh, cast referencing the tower, talking about how great it is to record there. And we're just going to assume that sometime down the line, we'll find another one um, that would be a good fit. So that was a huge risk that we took. But nine months after finishing principal photography and many, many like um, attempts to get one, we ended up finding the perfect fit, and uh, we think it looks even better than the original. So. Talk about finding the tower, Andrew. It was 
hard for us because as far as we knew, that was the only location of its kind that uh, was out there. But luckily, we found a guy named Spencer Harding whose photography project from a while back was photographing what are called the Long Lines Towers, which were... Um, AT&T microwave AT tower yeah. technology. And they've been out for a long time. And this guy had basically gone around the country, photographed as many of them as he could find and track their location. Pretty convenient for us, if I do say so myself. Yeah. So we got a phone call with him and he gave us the rundown of, oh, this one's destroyed, this one's destroyed. You could try asking this one, but the owner's a little freaky, so be careful. You know, we just made our way down the list. And um, eventually, once we found this one, I had a drone pilot from the Bay Area where the tower was, um, kind of do like a scout of the area so we could find our way in, see how we would get up and all this stuff. And um, it was really exciting. We had a great weekend shooting there. We had a tower climber coordinator who does that for his job. And through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, we found him and he came out to train us and help us bring the camera up there. Um, Connor's first time shooting on a tower, I assumed. <laughs> and uh, it was a good time. And it looked amazing on screen, really. And thanks to Titus Davis. Yes, the filming Titus. To it. Amazing, Titus, amazing up. shot up, right there. Aesthetically amazing right there. Titus was the senior man in charge of our, of our drone operator. So he shot the first scene in the movie and the last scene in the movie. Amazing shot. Our second question is for Ray. What was it like playing Buster? I had a blast, man. It was great. So I showed up the first day on set with my, with my Blockbuster hat, and that's kind of how I got my name. Spencer put a Facebook post out to basically anybody who would show up to be an extra for like a couple days of filming was like, anybody who's around should please <laughs> stop by, please. I need people, you know, and I, I messaged him and him and I went to Biola together. We were on the same floor. So I was like, heck yeah, man, I want to be in your movie. That's freaking awesome. And about a week later, he messages me back and goes, hey, man, so uh, we had a cast member fell through, which I thought was a one-time thing, but I guess it happened kind of all the <laughs> Multiple time. Multiple times, <laughs> yeah. So, it uh, happened a lot. <laughs> and I was like, heck yeah, like I'd love to. So um, yeah, just, I mean, you see my face around uh, every now and then in the scenes, but I am always have some like crazy expression on my face or hyped up and you know that's how I've been for for three years for this movie and it's just really cool to see it all finally come together and I came Friday Saturday and Sunday so I I don't know I like to I like to think a little bit that I'm a, the since hype man you know since you came all three days we're like all right you get to be on the panel <laughs> that's you the, be on the panel hype, today. <laughs> the heart and soul the heart that. and soul and you, Ray dude I remember at, like we were trying to, I wanted to get you in more scenes in the movie and I was like, dude, you have to be in it. You're amazing. You're like, dude, I'm stuck in Tahoe. I can't do it. And Andrew was stuck like, I'll drive to yeah. two and a half hours away to Tahoe to get you, yeah. dude, because we need you in the movie. And then we got you. And now we're just best friends for life, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> Love it. Our next question is for Tyson. Give it up for Tyson in the movie. Woo! So Tyson, what was it like coming aboard Space Waves a week before production? Yo, How yes. did that impact the way you went about playing Duke? So I owe some actor uh, a thank you. Uh, All I know is that there was a guy before me and then he bailed pretty last minute and I got the role about two weeks before production started. He bailed two weeks before. You got the role 10 days before. It's there we go. Yeah, t t even better. <laughs> 10 days before production started. I was at Knott's Berry Farm with my family, actually. My parents are here tonight. Uh, Wait, where, where are your parents? Which ones? Right here. Right here? Right awesome. Here. Good to see you guys. Um, and uh, we were, I had already auditioned for you and, and sent that uh, in, and we were hanging out, and then I get a call, and you just said, hey, do you want the role? And I was like, yeah, so. But you, uh, were, you were not even sure if you wanted to audition, right? Oh, I, it was very sketchy at first. Like, <laughs> yeah. I got this random message on Backstage.com, which is a, a website that a lot of actors will go on. But I hadn't used it. I, my account wasn't active. So I, like, hadn't used it in forever. And I get this random email, and I check it, and it's... Uh, from this woman saying she's a casting director, which actually ended up being you using the casting director's profile. 
Because she had catfished you, dude. Yeah, so yeah, you catfished me so hard. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, it's like, yeah, well, we're casting this movie, and, and uh, I, in the, I think in the email you referenced my reel, and you were like, yeah, I love that joke in, the, in your reel. It's so funny. And I was like, it's not that funny. Um, <laughs> would you be interested in auditioning? I think I sat on that email for like a full day, just being like, I, this could be a horror story, but it was like, ah, well, why not? I look, uh, oh, I looked up you guys online just to see, you know, all right, well, let me look at the project. Your presence online, your website at the time, the Indiegogo campaign, because obviously you guys had already been quite into that whole, you know, process of raising funds for the film, convinced me uh, that, that this was a real project and that, you know, you guys were taking it seriously. So I said yes, send in my audition rest is history and showed up to film not even memorizing most of my lines because yeah, i had that, it dude let's I talk had about it, that yeah 10 days before production and i'm trying to memorize scenes which led to a lot of improvisation which uh i'm grateful for that you let me do to be honest the improv kind of makes it real though i think it was fun it was a lot of fun and um honestly i i, I wouldn't you know trade that experience for anything else this yeah. is to date my favorite on-set experience, so. But my favorite is when you showed up to the base camp. What were you, 29? And I was like, dude, yeah. you're like closer in age to my dad. Yeah, <laughs> that was a running gag. I was and I was like, you'll get along with my dad. And then you did end up hanging I out I did with my actually. Dad. <laughs> very, yeah, it was, I, I, there were many times when they were all hanging out and I'm just like, I'm gonna go talk to Mr. White. <laughs> so, and I, I do remember showing up and I was, I was really tired. I didn't get much sleep before the flight. I kind of shook everyone's hand. Everyone was all groggy. And so I just like, laid on the couch and fell asleep. I just woke up to then everyone having a meeting. I think that's how I met you. You like sat down on the couch and I was like, huh? and you're like, hi, I'm Andy. And I'm like, Tyson. And then fell back to sleep. I'm Tyson. You know I'm not a morning person, right? <laughs> it's 9 p.m., bro. <laughs> Andy, tell us about the family vibe on set. Right from the get-go, it really felt like a family. Everybody was just like very welcoming. Like everybody felt like my friends right off the Andy, bat. Andy, talk about <laughs> hype speeches. Because you fully believe in them. I do. I do talk fully believe in Tell them. Tell the audience about Why it. Why do we have so, hype speeches? Spencer is obviously a major fan of hype. <laughs> In case you didn't notice. <laughs> So basically, before we started principal photography, Spencer was like, okay, everybody is going to have to sign up for a time slot. And you had to sign up for a time slot to give a hype speech at the beginning of a shooting day. And you just had to like come up with this hype speech to get everybody super excited for the day. We'd all be chanting spaceways by the end of it. And it was a great way to start off the day. It was, yeah, a great way to wake up. It's protocol. It's protocol. Get a recenter and figure out why you are here. Here. There was a chant, too. Oh, a chant, dude. Yeah, yeah it was quantity four. Quantity four. Space waves, space waves, space waves, space waves. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Honestly, those hype speeches were, were very necessary because we're in yeah. the heat up in Grass Valley and we're filming for long days. On a project like this, every day is rushed. Yeah. You're trying to cram in as much of the script as you can each filming day. So the hype speeches were, were very much needed to help get us all through the days, I think. Next question. How was dealing with a broken down Mustang? What problems did this pose? It was heavy. <laughs> and, and pushing it was hard. Grass Valley is hot. <laughs> it was hot. People ask me to, to this day, what do you do for exercise? And I point back to three years ago, pushing that Mustang up hills. So, so the, the problem with the Mustang is that it's in a lot of scenes in the movie. And it was in more scenes before it broke down on day two, and we had to figure out a different solution. And one funny thing is that in the scene where Marvin's all like emotional and he's telling Sawyer, get in the car, you know, it's five miles, I'm gonna drive you home. Super melodramatic, but I guess it works. Right? Yeah. <laughs> get in the car. In that scene, um, you know, his car is like in the background in frame and then it stops. The car wasn't working. 
on that day. Like, it can't turn on. So right off frame, there were probably five of us just pushing, pushing the, car the car in dude. neutral. And it took a lot of takes to time it up so that you don't just see, like, five dudes, like, in frame following Marvin and Sawyer. All I can think of when I see that scene, because I noticed Marvin hits the brake pretty hard. So all I think of is I just yeah. see, like, five dudes all of a sudden just slam into the back of it. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> And Spencer would be like, resetting back to one, and you just hear people grunting. Like, oh, <laughs> and uh, I feel bad. I feel really bad for Tiffany, my sister, because she was really upset at me. Because we kept hearing the, the footsteps, and I was like, okay, take your shoes off. <laughs> and so there's gravel. It's like Barefoot. asphalt gravel, like little rocks. And they're in their socks, like pushing the ow, car. Geez. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> I'll chime in a little bit with that one. Yeah. I don't want to give it any insider secrets away, but what I can say is that the Mustang was absolutely pivotal to setting the vibe of the movie. 80s nostalgia, and I can at least speak for me that coming up, and I think I can speak for Spencer too, that coming up and watching Transformers and how that just totally changed and catapulted me through puberty, we all know what scene I'm talking about. The wrenching on the engine. All right, sorry about it. But Camaros, Mustangs, yes. muscle cars. And it was a blast from the past, but pairing that with the futurism of the robots and all that type of stuff, there's a little thread of that, I think, in the film. And whether that was conscious or unconscious, who knows? There's also a Little. Transformers sticker on the back of Marvin's car. Yes. Right. Did anybody Easter notice egg. the Autobot sticker on the back of Marvin's car? A little Easter egg. Roll out. <laughs> Roll out. That's perfect. Right. Alex, they say a movie's made three times. How did you see Space Waves transform from script to on set through post-production? Yeah, so I was the editor on Space Waves, and uh, thank you. <laughs> Go! Hire that man! <laughs> the man behind the curtain. I actually had the good fortune to read the script before it was even shot. That was part of how Spencer and I met. We were at a class that uh, was a little boring at times, and so he was like, here's the script I'm working on. If you want to read, read during it. during class. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I had time to read the whole script, and I really liked it, um, especially just like that kind of emotional second half of the film just really resonated with me. And uh, so it was cool to see that, and then I actually got to go on set too and work with you guys for a week. But yeah, from there, uh, I mean, on, as you guys know, this took years to make. So when we were in post-production, we actually reshot a lot of scenes as well. And uh, Spencer rewrote that uh, playground scene. So that was reshot and re-edited and, you know, all of that good stuff. But then in the editing room, I mean, there were actually, you know, of course, like, okay, does this scene work? Or do we need to rewrite it? Or, you know, is there an extra scene that we want to put in? And so we were able to actually do that and uh, shoot a lot of extra scenes. So some of the montages that you see in there were actually shot after principal photography. The interior of the classroom was shot uh, afterwards as well. One big addition was uh, Spencer wrote the scene where you see Marvin like smashing the recorder and then throwing it. The super emotional, you know, just depths of despair kind of moment for him, really big for his character. And uh, that was like a total addition that we, we came up with and edited after. That was one so. of the last shoots we did. Yeah. Because we watched the movie many, many times over four years, and Alex and I were just like, dude, there's like something missing, dude. And then we realized we needed an even deeper dark night of the soul moment yep. for Marvin. And so we decided to have that scene where Marvin's looking at the recorder and he's just kind of reminiscing on all that. I think that people really connected with that and they really felt that scene. So we're really glad that uh, we shot that scene. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. all the podcast narrations were something. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, all of the podcast narrations that you hear throughout, just like kind of describing different scenes and things that, you know, they're doing some of the like crazy, like Samson's lot kind of moment and everything. 
and even just in the thrift store, just like the narrations throughout the film, we added those all in after a couple years of working on the movie. It was like, this needs to be more podcast heavy in the first half, because if it's really podcast heavy in the first half, you really feel the absence of the podcast in the second half, and it hits harder. And you also hear Marvin saying that it's like a solo episode, you know, a little later. Joey's still really sick. Right, right. He's making excuses. It kind of like adds to that arc for the story and everything. Um, and yeah, there were also moments that we ended up cutting out. Um, there was even one edit that we made uh, Thursday, <laughs> and uh, we chopped just a little. Not bit at off the last moment the at all. Yeah, oh, no, not at all. The no. day before the premiere, we chopped out thirty seconds of space waves we to make it ultra crisp and ultra prime. Right, and it, Alex? It's pretty crispy. It's so. crispy, dude. <laughs> All right, this question is for Andrew slash Spencer slash Alex. The fans want to know, was Girthinator a Joe Rogan parody? We didn't plan that. <laughs> we actually did not know who Joe Rogan was. When the we only filmed. three people on the planet who didn't know who he yeah, was. We didn't know who he was. We weren't like into podcasts or whatever, and then it turned... Honestly, it was the biggest happy accident. It turns out the number one podcaster in the world and then the number one podcaster in Space Waves are like the same person. <laughs> yeah, what are the odds? It's, it's a bald guy with tattoos drinking on the air. All I got to like, say oh, is... Oh, I didn't even realize it's exactly him. <laughs> when Joe Rogan sees this movie, I wonder how he's going to respond. That's all I got to say. He's going to sue us, dude. <laughs> Hopefully or change not. his name to Girthinator. Girthinator. Uh, <laughs> so actually, one really fun thing about that like intro song is that we kind of found that between the takes. So they're all nodding to Spencer's direction. And we're like, telling them that what looks to like do, they're, and they're all like nodding. Yeah. And it looks like they're bopping their heads to a song. Yeah. So we're like, we should put an intro song in there. <laughs> So we just cut out me talking to the guys and we put a song there and it looks like they're just bobbing to the music, but they're really bobbing to me telling them what to do. <laughs> and the first version of the song is me, Spencer, and Andrew doing Girthinator. <laughs> and then we temp it out, you know, and then we send it to the sound designer and we're like, please make something good. Yeah, and they make it good. Yeah. <laughs> That's got my favorite cameo in it too, uh, with you, Andrew. You're the one that cracks your knuckles, goes yeah. in. Okay, so it looks like there's a question for Luke Reed. Luke Reed, what was it like playing yourself in the movie? Okay, well, I can take this question. <laughs> playing Luke Reed, let's see. I guess it didn't take that much prep work. I had like 20-something years of uh, prep work. and Method acting, right? Yeah, I guess you call that method acting, right? No, but honestly, I mean... I was accustomed to having a camera jammed in my face with Spencer because he was my best friend. And, you know, you'd say anything and be like, oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm like, do Let's, it again, Luke. Let me film it. Do it again. Let's put do that again. on the cellulose. Celluloid. Whatever. Cellulose. <laughs> so I was accustomed to that. But no, honestly, uh, I mean, being a part of a film it totally just epitomizes the nature of our relationship, okay? And our relationship is based on the story. Anytime we give each other a call, it's not any type of small talk. It's, all right, dude, lay it on me. What's the story of the week? Regardless of how mundane it is, it doesn't matter. You gotta weave it into a story. And so what we do is we play off of each other and we hype each other up and we, we uh, hone our stories. And all that to say, you know, I hope that you guys have somebody like that in your life that hypes you up over the mundane. Luke, one of the Excuse best me. things you ever said to and me. That's what dude, it is. Well, two best things you ever said to me. One was, if you're not winning, you're making a good story. And I loved that, dude, because basically it's like, even if we fail at life or at any little thing, we call each other and we're like, dude, we just had this horrible fail, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, right. That's and right. And then one of the best compliments you ever gave me, dude, is you said, I wouldn't know what memories to hold on to if it wasn't for you always that's telling right. me to tell that one story. You know, and I really love that, dude, because we try to find beauty in the mundane and we try to find excitement in just the little things that happen. And that's that's what you guys really see in space waves. Right. It's that all these funny little moments that don't really mean much, but we put it to screen and we and we say that it's valuable, you know, and we like that.
That's right. Exactly right. right. <laughs> and with that, we'd like to open it up to you guys. So if you've got a question, lay it on us. We'd love to fill in the gaps right Ooh, here. We so. got John Riscala, the first hand. Yes, beard and glasses. <laughs> So the question is, Spencer, what character do you feel the closest to? I mean, well, obviously Marvin, just because of the whole best friend breakup, you know, and that's the point of view that I wrote the movie from, was from Marvin. But it's funny because most people tell me, they're like, oh, dude, you're totally Duke, you know? <laughs> just like rolling up in the car with the song blaring, and then you get out and you're like this. Yeah, I, in, I, what, in what parts do you identify with Duke? That's a good question. <laughs> okay, I really identify with Duke when like he's showing people the movie, Hourglass Existence, check this out, this is so sick, right? And then my friends are like, mm, yeah. <laughs> Eh. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's okay, you know, but I feel like I'm in all the characters, not so much Joey, but I think writing Joey was an amazing experience because it was able to help me see the other perspective and be able to see what it's like to be on the other side of that and to be the person that wants to grow up and wants to go pursue a career and all this stuff. Because at the beginning of the writing process, you know, back in 2017, I was thinking, oh man, Joey, he's just, he's just a jerk and he doesn't care about Marvin. But kind of the first drafts of the screenplay and you write them like that and it's so one dimensional, right? And it's like, that's not really real. You know, Joey still cares about Marvin, but it's just time is going on and they're growing up and I think it's just hard because one of them is, is maturing at a faster rate than the other one. And I think that's something a lot of people deal with. I think he had a second question as well. <laughs> okay, cool, yeah. What's up? <laughs> what Andrew, that's you, dude. material did we use for the defecation Defecation, dude. So that was, that was my job station. to figure out. Um, and that was a blast. I ordered a Pudo from Amazon which you can get $15 for a pack of four brown Play-Dohs. And it comes Not with bad. a little poop-shaped mold that you uh, put the Pudo in, and you uh, clamp it down, pull it out, and we shot it against a green screen, comped it in later, and that was my job for about a week. It, so. <laughs> it looks so real, dude. It really, it's kind of like wiggling there <laughs> as it comes down. Dude. Added a little post-movement, yeah. yeah. We could get more into color and shape, but we don't want an explicit tag. <laughs> All right, what else, guys? Q and A. Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us about the incident at the gas station? Tell us about the incident at the gas station. All right, who wants to take this? I can. I can start this off. Yeah. Um, we had a really brutal principal photography. It was 18 days total, um, and we finally made it to day 18, and we had one scene left to shoot, and it was the one where Marvin goes into a gas station and buys cigarettes. And uh, we had a location that was there um, that we had scouted like six months prior to the principal photography, um, and because we had no money, um, we had no contract with them, and they felt no obligation to keep the original date. So we had um, two reschedules on us, and we show up on the last night of the day. We were all in Grass Valley, and they said, sorry, yeah, it's not really gonna work out to shoot it right now. Talk about why, do you remember? I feel like people won't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, it's true, seriously, <laughs> tell them. The reason why we couldn't shoot at that liquor store at that time was because um, the owner had uh, left and was in a fight with his brother, who was the owner of a different rival liquor store, <laughs> 30 minutes away. There was a fight and police were involved. We and handguns. Well, we read about that in the paper later. We read about it in the paper afterwards. There were handguns involved and the guy that owned the store that we were trying to film at got arrested that yeah, night. So I had, <laughs> there was killing. So that is a true story. Okay, and okay. I had Googled his name because the owner uh, had come out and told us, you guys really can't film here right now. My, my boss is gonna kill me. So, so I said, okay, 
today, could I at least have his name and his contact info because I've got like six hours before our first day C is on a flight to Canada and we need to finish shooting the movie, right? <laughs> so they're like, okay, here's his name. You can probably find him on Facebook. I Google his name and yeah, he had been felony court charges. <laughs> yeah, no joke. So I'm saying, okay, we got to find someone else to go into business with tonight and uh, figure out what we're going to do. The only gas station within 40 minutes of uh, where we were that would let us shoot was this Chevron. And so we all hooked it over there as soon as we could. And after we got there, um, we had pulled up Spencer's car, pushed it into place as per usual. And then um, we were starting to film and there was this lady who was just kind of emerged from the back of the Chevron. She was definitely on a lot of drugs. And she started just touching Spencer's car. Do you want to go into detail about that? It started with one finger. You know, first she was like, wow, I like the hood. <laughs> and then she starts going two fingers. And she's like, my boyfriend used to have one of these cars when I was in high school. No joke. We're like, okay, we're trying to set up the scene here. And we're trying to get her out of here. But the Mustang isn't working, so we can't move the car. So she's just stuck on the car like, can you open up the hood? <laughs> so at that time, I went into the Chevron to tell them, like, hey, I know we're not paying you to be here, but we just need a favor. It's this... just way too distracting, dude. And we, like, want to get out of your hair. We want to finish shooting this scene. Could you please, like, help her get off the property? And... <laughs> so and... there's two Chevron workers. One of them takes takes it one for the team and he takes her I don't even know how he did it but he, he like distracted her and he takes her around the building uh, and and then what <laughs> the story gets just like a little bit dark so hang with me because it ends funny but um, when we were going for takes you know we were trying to keep getting the shot it wasn't working eventually he comes back and he's like man you guys owe me one like she was she was trying to like touch me and kiss me and stuff and I'm like oh this is not good so what he did immediately was he called the police she was sexually harassing him that's exactly no joke what happened. she he called the police on her and that's why if you notice in the movie the lights aren't like flaring or whatever but there is, there's a cop car in the back of the shot. So yeah. if you notice, if you notice the cop car, the reason the cop car is there be, is because the woman was getting detained and taken away. Because she was literally like just going crazy over us. So if and you the use car that, and everything. If you use that 6K footage and if we had a little more light, you would see her sitting in the back seat <laughs> of that car during Handcuffed. The shot. Yeah, so that's a true story. So you could say she was Space Wave's first fan. <laughs> you could say that. Another Next question. question. Next question. No Andy Dibiak, you have a question. What did you associate with personally the most and why as far as characters go? I really associate with Marvin's character a lot. Like, I think I struggled with post high school and getting into college, just losing those friendships. And even now, as you transition or transitioning into my 30s, and a lot of my friends are you know, pursuing a bit more traditional things. And yeah, so I, I get what that feels like to, to feel like you're losing a lot of friendships and, and people are just sort of falling out of your life. And even if you try to stay in contact, just, you know, people are busy. They have, they have other things that they're doing now. Um, so I think Marvin, for me, I definitely can relate. I think that I uh, can relate to a couple of them. I think I've had some Marvin seasons of life and some Joey seasons of life. I think that right now is more of a Joey season because I'm a freelancer and trying to like start a company and stuff. And so I spend a lot of time working. And sometimes it's important to be with people who help you remember that like there's a lot of other stuff outside of work that's life giving, you know? It's probably my takeaway. Yeah. So what, what are our favorite scenes and why? Besides the makeout scene, Connor. <laughs> Makeout scene was quite unique. Uh, <laughs> me and Spencer probably like three or four times walked out of the house and we're like, how do we approach it? Like, how do we tell two people to start making out and not make it like weird or awkward? And I think I set up the camera and left the room. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you 
were like, Spencer, do you have any like shot ideas for this? Like, you're the director, you do it. And I'm like, well, you're the DP, set up the shot. And you're like, no, I think you have an idea for this. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> okay, whatever's most comfortable. And then so she gets on top of him. We're like, oh, okay, this, I guess this is most comfortable. <laughs> so the makeout scene went a little raunchier than we expected, but you know, sex sells, so. <laughs> yeah. I think for myself, my favorite scene, without a question, is the school scene where I run around distracting the principal. And that's for two reasons. One, because I'm in it a lot. Two, because that was another of many examples of a day that could have gone really wrong and we pulled together and made something out of it that I was not really supposed to have much to do that day. And we were supposed to be filming mostly uh, the classroom scene with all the kids and everything like that. Ex what were you supposed to be doing? What was the script? Originally? I was supposed to be fighting a vending machine. Um, <laughs> none of the kids, none of the extras for the classroom showed up. Literally no people showed up. And so suddenly we had an entire day looking like it was going to be lost. I think that was even like really a question. It was like, well, hey, do we just pack up, head back to home base? Our site rep for the school also didn't show up. So we didn't know how to get into the building. It was all locked until... Oh, I snuck in. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, I did. I got in. And uh, we just started setting up. And... Yeah. Wow, that's wild. I forgot about that. And so then all of a sudden, we're, we're now faced with the decision of like, well, hey, can we turn this into something? Can we make this into a day that, you know, we don't lose? So I think it was myself and Spencer, and, and we went into one of the classrooms, sat down, took a blank sheet of paper, and we're just trying to hammer out a structure for how this new scene could go. Do we write any, uh, any lines at all, or do we only get like beats in action and then just say like, we'll just try to wing it the rest of the way? How, how, how? I don't know, it was a lot of winging it, but it was basically, what can we shoot here in this school without shooting like the interior of the classroom with all the kids in it? Because we didn't have that. So we just decided we could have Duke running around trying to delay the principal, you know, from getting into the classroom. And so we just had fun with it. And we had you chasing them around and stuff. And it was actually even longer, but we cut that down. But that's kind of the extent of that story. Shout out to my dad who stepped up. Yeah, to play yeah. Principal yeah. Mr. Bear. He did. I mean, amazing job. Do we have another favorite scene? Luke, do you have a favorite scene, dude? I absolutely do have a favorite scene. Um, on a bit of a different note, I think from an aesthetic perspective, I really, really enjoy the montage scenes where we ramp it up with the music, and I think that's where um, you really shine through because you know of your just enthusiasm with music and being able to syncopate all the action with the music and stuff. I think that's really a nice touch. So there's two scenes like that, maybe more, but at least. The one, like at the beginning, you know, where Tyson and he's got the he's got the camera and he's holding it like a spec ops operator and he's going into to the phallic sin scene and he's in the back of the truck and stuff and they're going in and I love that I love that that yeah. that was my favorite. I think that was also my favorite scene. Not that I had anything to do with that, but Spencer wanted it all in one take. And it was just cool to watch behind the scenes of like how that was all done and see it come to life on screen. Yeah, that came out really good. That, that was a good team effort too. Shout out to Becca, who is keeping us in focus for that whole shot. Yeah. You, wow. you. Oh, so a lot of the pre-pro for this was maybe not figuring out like, how are we going to get all this coverage? But it was more, what does the blocking in this scene really mean for the characters and like what they're going through? There was a lot of intentionality put into like just shooting the shot. It was a lot of times either just locking it off and putting it somewhere or following someone around as they went through the scene. Yeah, we just found there's a lot of power in just giving the actors, I mean, especially for a comedy, giving them freedom to kind of go through the whole scene in one take or two takes. And if we just gave them rough areas to end up in, they had a lot of freedom that way. And there's something special to like the movie unfolding in real time. And I, I'm all for the montages and the hype and the crazy stuff. But also I think I try to bring a good balance to it where some of the scenes, like the argument scene or <laughs> the bagel scene, it's, it's long for a reason, you know? 
either for comedy with the bagel, you know, he butters this whole thing and then it just drops, you know? Uh, or the argument scene, I think, is probably just my favorite scene because I don't know if you guys noticed, but that argument scene of Marvin and Joey is four and a half minutes. Trap you in the corner and you're just tripod staring at it. And we think there's something really special to not drawing attention to the editing sometimes and just being like, let's just play it out. And if the acting is strong enough, it'll carry the scene and it. it'll let you kind of soak in the moment, I guess. I'll say to add to that, from a DP standpoint, that's really hard to do sometimes. It takes a very confident director to just be like, all right, we can do this in one shot. Like I'm confident we can do this. And it really turned out well. What about Easter eggs? We got to address this at least a little bit, right? Okay. What about Ruth, okay? Ruth. There's a few different times where you'll see sporadically sprinkled in there, like uh, sprinkles, the name Ruth <laughs> Wardsmith here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody noticed it, Luke. Okay, okay Ruth but, is mentioned but that's like why we got to draw some attention to okay, it. Okay, so rewatch Space Waves. Come tomorrow night, buy another ticket. Oh, they might. Yeah, come tomorrow night, watch the movie again, and you will see that there's a podcast called Where's Ruth. In the BPB News ticker at the bottom, it says the hunt for Ruth continues. And then uh, Orion, who did, do you guys remember the bagel scene? You hear the audio going in the background, the stand-up comedian? That's Orion right there. And he's like, the hunt for Ruth continues. Search and rescue teams sent to find search and rescue teams that were searching for Ruth. So who is Ruth? Who is Ruth? Andrew, tell us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I told this story, Space Waves would have been finished three years ago. <laughs> but Spencer and uh, James, uh, one of the pre-production producers and I, we were on a location scout. Um, in NorCal, and I think it was December, January of 2018, is uh, way before we shot it. Um, we were walking uphill, it was snowing, basically a blizzard, right? And uh, we're going up to um, these different homes, and we're looking for where to shoot Marvin's home exterior. We didn't need to film inside, we just needed a place to like have outside. So we're literally just walking down the street and knocking on people's doors and like, hey, can we come film outside of your house in six months? No? Cool, yeah, that's fine. And go on to the next one. So we knock on one fateful door. <laughs> one fateful door. And, and what do um, we hear, Andrew? And so we knock on the door, and out of nowhere, we just hear, Ruth? <laughs> Ruth? <laughs> and they don't open the door, right? We just hear them from the back room. Ruth, is that you? Ruth, Ruth? Multiple times, dude. Multiple times. I'm like, and I'm not Ruth. And I'm telling her, like, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is not us. She a came to the door, and she's like, ah, you're not Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> So no, our takeaway our takeaway was that Ruth is missing. <laughs> so we had to make sure people watch this movie know about that. All right. Do we have Yes, sir. The real life Mr. Fallixon. Let's talk about it. Is there a senior man in charge? That's a good warm-up right there. <laughs> I think Tyson uh, actually wrote a song about the real-life Mr. Fallix. I don't remember set. it, so please don't, don't, <laughs> don't make me sing that. I think one line was, don't BS me, you don't know where my stuff goes. Yeah. <laughs> where does that line come from, Alex? So don't. that line comes from the real-life Mr. Fallixon. And so as you saw in the movie, there was this character, Mr. Fallixon, who owned this river, and uh, the super ironic part about that is when we were filming at that same river, we had a home base at this house that wasn't too far away from it, and uh, we're packing up, and uh, there was the man of the house who had no idea that we were there filming. <laughs> and he, he was back. not like, happy about it. What is this? <laughs> it was pretty rough, because like, the whole setup had been with his daughter and then her mom, and yeah, they, they were like, we were fine to film there. We met them at the beginning of the day, and like, she gave us a tour that she's like, here's where the bathroom is. Like, yep. I'm out of here. See you later. Have a good day. And uh, yeah, apparently he had no idea. <laughs> and I remember this because like, this is the end of the shooting day, and I'm sitting there. I'm tired. I had like a headache all day. I'm eating like a snack, drinking water, and I see this guy who I don't recognize, and he's just kind of walking around with this very confused look on his face. <laughs> And I'm just like, hmm, 
that's not good. Uh, did he find you first or, or Andrew? Andrew? Yeah, it was Andrew. Yeah, he finds you. What did he say? What did he say to you at first? He goes, "Who are you? Why are you here? Whatever." And we say, "Well, your daughter gave us permission." And he goes. My effing daughter, what? And he starts swearing at us and like getting up in your face, dude. And I'm in my face too. So I was getting cornered by this crazy, angry dad. <laughs> and if you know anything about me, you know, I'm not a really confrontational guy. And Andrew is like the sweetest human being of all time. <laughs> so this was my like first fight, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But it was me versus him, and he was like, what the F are you guys doing here? Why are you here? Get on my house. And so you was, move my stuff. And yeah. I'm looking at the garage, I'm thinking, well, it'd be great to get out of here as soon as we can, but we've got gear all over this guy's house. So I uh, got like power cords and chargers. We're spread out. We made ourselves at home. So I told Spencer, like, get everyone together. We got to get out of here as You're soon as possible. Motion. Yeah. Go, go, get to the chopper. And, and uh, Tyson did a good job of helping me with uh, kind of doing damage control on the dad and talking him down and being like, hey, we don't want any problems, sir. We're just trying to, like, get out of here. And he ended up chasing us out of the house. We had a record speed rap time. And Alex, Alex was the last guy in the garage. And there was um, our drone operator, who was this really, really sweet 60-year-old oh, man. <laughs> yeah, his name was Titus. And it was Titus and Alex who were packing up their last cases. And I swear, the dad was doing this to the garage door, trying to get it down as soon as possible, thinking that pushing the button more would speed it up, but that's not how it works. So they were running out, and you had an Indiana Jones moment, like grab the, the last thing cable, closing. the garage door closes. Your power cable dropped, and you like snatched it right <laughs> before the door closed. And I was gonna say, just like Mad Max Fury Road, we all hop in the trucks and just book it out of there as my, soon as possible. My so. favorite part in the whole story is the drone operator, Titus. It's important to the story that I mentioned he was in his mid-50s at the time, something like that. He's the oldest person on set by far. And this guy comes up straight to him, ignores all of us, because he clearly is like, these children know nothing. <laughs> and he walks up to, to Titus and goes, are you the senior man in charge? And Titus looks at him dead in the face and goes, well, I'm a senior man, but I'm not in charge. <laughs> And that is the story of the real life Mr. Fallickson. Mr. Fallickson. Any other questions? Yes, right here. Um, so the question is from a financial perspective, how do we make it happen money-wise? Yeah, so we did have very, very little money compared to a lot of movies. But I'd say that um, we got really far through Spencer's connections um, in Grass Valley because we shot it in his hometown. Um, and so he like knows the like owner of the thrift store and he knows like these other people around town who want to help out. His family has connections to people. House we shot in your house. Yeah, just using like your resources and your friends' resources and the fact that we were at Biola, obviously like, I think our camera and lighting budget for 18 days of shooting is probably like $200. Because <laughs> we just used like Biola equipment and then like bought some gaff tape and a couple gels, I don't know. <laughs> but like, that's a big part of it. And then also just having people like Alex who just signed on to help out and be a part of it and in, like three years go by, but like you're still on the team and just want to do it. So um, it's a lot of like the people who just attach themselves because they believe in it even though like can't really pay. The other reason it took so long is a lot of it was we'd work on it and, w and then we'd run out of money. And then Andrew and I are working like minimum wage jobs out of, yeah. <laughs> out of college. Yeah. And then we'd save up a grand and then we'd spend it and then we'd go, go, go. And then we'd stop. And then there was a lot of that a and a lot of donations from our family. So we thank you guys. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's kind of the answer to that one. Yeah. I see that hand. Oh, yeah. Do you mind if I take this one first? I mean, this was my, this is, is still my first feature film that I got to be in. So like that was huge for me, like to, in terms of the experience. And, and as I got to see the project continue and, and grow and, and be a part of it. So that felt like a stepping stone to actually be in a feature film and have a, a role of, with some good meat to it and, and have a lot of good fun. I mean, at the time, I. Yeah, I don't think I really had very much else going on. Like I was 
already graduated with a theater degree, really questioning that choice. So are we. Yeah. His parents. Really, everybody. really, really going, I think I wasted a lot of my parents' money. Luckily, I had a lot of feedback on that. Uh, so no, but it was, it was kind of like a nice, I mean, uh, it, like almost like a validation in a way of like, cool, this is, uh, things are happening. And, it, and honestly, the way that it, that it happened with the whole getting signed on super last minute was kind of that, what's that word, that kismet? It felt very lucky, to be honest. And yeah, so that's kind of what it meant for me. It was, it was huge. Uh, for me, I'd say that uh, I knew for a long time that I wanted to make movies, and Space Waves was kind of me and Spencer's like, how hard can it be? Let's go do it kind of moment, you know? <laughs> and then I learned, I got my answer. Okay, this is how hard it is. But um, Harder than everything else I thought it would be. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but I think I like to look back and see how little I knew going into it and then knowing that everything was okay still, and we got to the other end and it finished. It excites me to go out and make the next movie and apply like what I've learned during this whole process, because I, I like to tell my friends that if they had seen the way that I produced Space Waves, they would never hire me, because <laughs> it was very unprofessional and I knew very, very little. But now, like going forward, I just know this is what I want to do, and I'm uh, looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, and I guess I'll say that just looking back on it, it's like the odds are so stacked against us every step of the way. But I think taking back to where we were in 2017, you were 17 years old when we started this. But I think looking back on it, the thing that really carried us through was that we had faith in God and we just covered the whole project in prayer from start to finish. And like I said, we had such a noble goal. It wasn't it wasn't about just making a movie. It was like we really felt a passion that we wanted to like be a light to people and just share a message and really try to champion the quality of forgiveness, you know, and try to remind people that it is so much more fulfilling if you choose that road. So I think that's what we did and that's what we always set out to do from the beginning and we never looked back, you know. And to add on to that too, one of the main reasons why it came together is because there is a group of uh, parents who and grandparents who for two years straight would meet every Tuesday on Zoom and pray for the production. And it grew into praying for other projects and kind of like a prayer network. But every Tuesday for two years, just sitting in prayer over this thing that they had never like seen before. They hadn't seen any clips. They like didn't know a ton about it, but they were just always there in support and without it. Raise doubt. your hand if you're part of the prayer group so we can thank you guys. Raise your hands. Well, guys, that concludes our Q&A session. Thank you guys so much for coming. We, we appreciate didn't do the, the raffle. support. We, we didn't do the raffle. Did, I didn't no. know that there was a raffle. Are we still doing that? <laughs> we got a raffle. We got a raffle. <laughs> so there you have it. I hope this was an informative and entertaining journey into the Space Waves universe. If you enjoyed hearing these stories, just wait until you see the entirety of Beast Mode. Beast Mode is our behind the scenes, the making of Space Waves documentary. In there, you're going to see a lot of these stories that you just heard come to life. And this documentary is going to be releasing an episodic format over the course of the summer. So there's a lot to look forward to. Also, last thing, I ask that you could rate this podcast on Spotify and Apple and also rate Space Waves on whatever platform you purchased and on IMDb. That really helps us out and helps get Space Waves in front of more people. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be dropping another Space Waves flavored episode very soon. That'll actually be a uh, Space Waves commentary track, so you don't want to miss that. Space Waves out. And that's it. <laughs>